A wise female once wrote, patience is a virtue. Express it if you can. It's seldom found in woman and almost never found in man. <laughs> Today I ask for your patience. Uh, we are in the midst of a verse-by-verse uh, -verse study of the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 17, where the Lord Jesus gives us the principles of spirituality, of walking with a physically absent Savior uh, and bearing fruit to His glory. Uh, but uh, we're not going to proceed verse-by-verse through that series today, nor next week. What I want to do for the next two weeks is uh, take some especially significant statements from the Upper Room Discourse and then kind of develop some ideas or some, some truths that spin off of those statements. And so today we're going to look at uh, John 14, 1 through 3, that we've already studied in the context of the Upper Room Discourse and I want to show how the seed of a very important doctrine, the rapture of the church, is introduced there. And we're going to say and try to teach three things that all TBFers should know about the rapture this morning. Okay. Uh, but first, let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's word. Um, let's pray for our troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters, as is our custom. Uh, we can be praying for the arrival of Aria, 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 had three chances and blew it. Uh, Aria, I'll, I'll get it. Aria Rose, who was nine pounds, three ounces, yeah, uh, ten fingers, ten toes, everything's there. That's great. So we're very thankful for, for her arrival, and I know Stephanie and Bo are very thankful as well. So let's go ahead and, and go into prayer. Uh, Father, we uh, meet here in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've fellowshiped, we've worshiped, uh, we've prayed, we've read Scripture, uh, and now we want to reflect on Scripture, and I pray that uh, we would see that uh, future yet unfulfilled Bible prophecy is your word, is your decree uh, in writing so we can know aspects of the future for certain before they happen. Uh, they certainly uh, affirm your sovereign control over history, and uh, they need to be uh, known to us, comforting to us, and convicting to us, and that's why we want to open up uh, this particular study. We pray you'd be glorified in that. Uh, we pray for those who serve us in the active military. Uh, I'm certainly thinking of uh, uh, the, the Moore family, the Sanford family. It's not just, uh, in this case, the men that are active military. It's the whole family that serves and makes sacrifices. We thank you for these two especially important people in our hearts. We pray your blessing on their families and their service. We pray especially for Christian military personnel that they might stay strong in their faith, they might live a contagious form of Christianity, and that they might excel in their tasks and their missions to your glory. We pray for our peace officers, our firefighters, uh, in light of the horrible um, helicopter crash for the medevac people yesterday. We think of, of those folks, too, that, that serve the public uh, in an active way, and so many of them locally are Christians and, and understand that's their ministry. So we pray for uh, those who have been injured and killed, and we pray for comfort for the families and for uh, your power to encourage and, as you see fit, to, to heal and raise back up those who have been 
uh, injured in this way, in this situation. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege, the freedom we have to enter, to enter in this building. And we know believers all over this city, all over this country and planet on the Lord's Day are getting together in some places. It's at their own risk. Here it's uh, very leisurely for us to, to come in and, and sit and uh, soak and sour. We don't want to do that. We want to sit, um, take information, and by your grace move it from our heads to our hearts and at our feet, our hands, and our, our lips that you might be glorified. And I pray that this study of uh, the next major event in your prophetic program would excite us, uh, would comfort us, and would convict us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, yeah, talking about patience, and I ask for your patience, and it's a virtue and all that. Uh, you know, the coming of the Lord in the rapture event is at hand. It's imminent. And yet, uh, it's been that way for 2,000 years. God has set the the rapture event as an impending, overhanging, could-happen-any-moment event, but it hasn't happened for 2,000 years. So in a way, you might say God has built um, patience into the very, very fabric of his prophetic program. And talking about uh, patience, many years ago, a man dissatisfied with his regular job uh, decided to join an order of monks. And these, these monks were committed to a lifestyle of labor and silence, so much so they could only speak two words every 10 years. So after his first 10-year stint as a monk, uttering only two words every 10 years, uh, somebody from the Vatican came to, to check him out, and uh, the guy said, I know you can't say anything, but every 10 years we have a meeting, we kind of review your, your work and let you know about some projects that are going to be coming up in the next 10 years. And we also give you your chance to say your two words. And so he said, you can say your two words now. And the guy said, food bad. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the archbishop said, well, thanks a lot. Uh, see you in 10 years. So the guy went out, did his thing for another 10 years with the order of monks, sat him down again, explained everything to him, and said, uh, what would you like to say? And the fellow goes, bed hard. At that point, with no patience whatsoever, the archbishop threw down his pencil and he said, that's it, buddy, you're out of here. All you ever do is complain. <laughs> All right, let's talk about um, three things TBFers should know about the rapture. And they are, number one, it's imminent. It's overhanging. It, there are no... Uh, other prophetic biblical events that have to happen before this thing can happen. It's uh, something we ought to be anticipating as a real possibility. Number two, it will initiate the end times. And shortly after the end times are fully initiated, there won't be any atheists. Everybody's going to choose sides one way or the other. If you wonder, God seems to be sometimes kind of subtle now. He will not be subtle in the end times. And uh, the rapture and Bible prophecy generally should impact us practically now. This is not uh, pie in the sky, by and by. This is very practical in its implications, okay? Let's start with John 14. We're uh, in our Upper Room Discourse series. We have read this in its fuller context and studied it. It's been especially significant to us in the aftermath of Rick's passing. 
uh, Rick uh, Buchanan's passing, I, I, I know I've shared this verse multiple times with him, and we prayed it and talked about it, and so it's very near and dear to my heart. But let's reread that. The Lord says, don't panic. Let not your hearts be troubled. I told you I'm leaving and you can't come, but don't panic. Keep on believing in God the Father. Keep on believing in me. In my Father's house, in heaven, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. If this was just a philosophy of life, I would have told you to run for the hills. But this is about eternal life. I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house where there are many dwelling places. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Now, although serious Bible students um, recognize that those words were spoken directly to the 11 believing apostles, albeit as the human foundation of the church, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, right? Uh, there are a lot of Bible scholars and theologians who see in these statements the seed for a doctrine that is called the rapture that's developed in the rest of the New Testament. And in fact, the rest of the New Testament takes that seed and grows this doctrine up into a full-grown spiritual redwood tree. Now, if anybody were to ask you what are the two most important passages on this biblical teaching, the rapture of the church, you, you need to know and you need to say that would be 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. So let's survey those briefly. And while you're turning to 1 Thess, let me just kind of give you a working definition of the rapture. I would say the rapture is the imminent supernatural return of Christ in the air, in the atmosphere of earth, which will initiate the end times and which, among other things, include the Lord. This is the exciting part for me. Which, among other things, include the Lord taking all living believers directly to heaven without having to undergo physical death. The bodies will be transformed in place without dying, and you'll get a resurrection body like the one Christ had at his resurrection, and you get taken straight to heaven. Uh, as many of us have said, we're, because of Christ, we're not concerned about death. It's just the dying process we're not crazy about, right? Uh, 1 Thess 4, 13 through 18, uh, I just want to briefly orient you uh, from these passages, so I'll just read them fairly briefly with some some short comments. Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brethren, fellow Christians, about those who are asleep. Sleep is a euphemism for the bodies of dead believers. We don't believe in soul sleep. Absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, the body as it were sleeps, not literally, but it's a euphemism for the death uh, of the, the bodies of dead believers whose souls have gone to be with the Lord. We don't want you to be unaware about folks in Thessalonica who have died uh, since they've come to faith, and the rapture didn't happen, and some of the people in Thessalonica think, my grandma's going to miss the rapture, miss all the fun. So we don't want you to be unaware about their participation in this, uh, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe, that's first class in the Greek, since we believe that Christ died and rose again. Now, rising again doesn't mean consciousness after death. On the cross on Friday, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise to the believing terrorist. Resurrection to, to rise is not consciousness after death. It's a reunion of your consciousness 
with what's left of your body supernaturally transformed into a resurrection body. Resurrection is the reunion of your soul and spirit with the components of your body, then supernaturally transformed into a body like the one Christ had at his resurrection. So since we believe that Jesus died and three days later he was resurrected, his consciousness went back into his body, supernaturally transformed, even so God will bring with him at the rapture the souls of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. They've died absent from the body with the Lord, but their bodies are still outside in Thessalonica somewhere in a graveyard. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive when the rapture event takes place and remain on earth until the coming, that particular coming of the Lord, shall not precede, shall not receive our resurrection bodies first, but those who have died first will come back with the Lord, they'll have their resurrection take place, and then uh, after the Lord descends, uh, the voice of the archangel the dead in Christ shall rise. Those who have died prior to the rapture will be resurrected first. Then we, Paul includes himself. When he wrote 1 Thess in 51 AD, he was believing and understanding the rapture is imminent. It could have happened the next day. It didn't, but it could have. So he says, those who have died before the rapture, church-age saints, will be resurrected in place. And then we who are alive and remain on earth when the rapture takes place, shall be caught up, that's in bold in your notes for a reason, uh, together with them, the rest of the crowd that's been previously resurrected, the ones who had died first, to meet the Lord in the air. This is all happening in the atmosphere, and thus we will always be at the Lord, comfort one another with these words. Uh, you see the expression, shall be caught up there uh, in the latter part of that passage. The, the word rapture, doesn't appear in the Bible. And not all Christians believe the rapture is distinct from the second advent, as I'll show you in a moment. And that's an acceptable position, even though, in my humble opinion, it's not a correct position. But the word rapture doesn't appear, Michelle, in the New Testament. But you know what? The word Bible doesn't appear in the Bible. The word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, but those teachings do. We get the term rapture from the statement there uh, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Those four words in English are translated rap by a verb rapturo in the Latin. What is that? What difference does that make? Well, Paul's writing in Koine Greek. In about 400 AD in the Mediterranean basin, more people could read Latin than Greek, so we needed a, a Latin translation called the Vulgate. A guy named Jerome working in Bethlehem. You ever heard of it? Something important happened there before that, but yeah, he's working in Bethlehem. He does this kind of definitive translation the Roman Catholic Church codified until 1965 Vatican II. But the point is, the Latin translation of this passage uses the verb rapturo to translate the statement shall be caught up. And from that, the term rapture has been coined to describe the event taught in 1 Thess 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. There are two major passages. We look at the seed of this doctrine in John 14, Upper Room Discourse. Now we're surveying very briefly the two major passages on this. And then we'll look at the three things we need to know. But if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 15, it's called the resurrection chapter for obvious reasons. He defines the gospel in the first couple of verses and goes on from there. 
But toward the end, he specifically zeroes in on this rapture event. And look at verses 51 through 54. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. What's a mystery in the Bible? Not something spooky or weird, but something previously unrevealed in the Old Testament. Okay? The church was a mystery. The end of the church age of the rapture was a mystery. Not revealed in the Old Testament. This is new stuff from his perspective. Apostolic kind of stuff. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. What's sleep? Euphemism for the dead bodies of believers that we bury or do other things with after they die. Right, Sarah? We shall not all sleep. Our bodies aren't all going to die. But we shall all, I'm talking about believers here. By the way, he's talking to the Corinthian believers. What do you know about their lifestyle? A lot of times you couldn't tell whose side they were on based on their lifestyle. That's the problem. Uh, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That there's, a, there's a generation of believers, church-age believers, just before the end times kicks in, who will not die physically. We're going to be resurrected in place. We're not all going to sleep, but we'll all be changed. Now, we know the dead in Christ come back with Christ and get resurrected first. Then we who are alive and remain are resurrected, right? That's what he just told us in 1 Thess. Same thing here. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. The dead will be resurrected first, the Christian dead. And then we, believers who are alive on earth when this event takes place, shall be changed. This perishable body must put on the resurrection body. This mortal must put on immortality. Now, over the 25 years I've been here, I've looked at those two passages from every angle, backward, upside down. I love them. But we're not going to do a detailed exposition of those today. I just wanted to get that on the table for reminder's sake. Now let's focus on the three things I want TBFers to know about the rapture. Number one, it's imminent. It could happen at any moment. Some of those Sundays when I seem to go abnormally long, cheer up. Cheer up, my friends. The rapture could happen before I finish the message. You know, so it's always a good thing, which is true. Um, number two, it will initiate the end times. It's kind of like the, pulling the pin from the grenade and then the end times. Tribulation, second advent, millennium, eternal state, boom, 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 follows in quick succession. And it should impact us now, practically. This isn't just esoteric stuff, Jane. This is stuff that can convict you, comfort you, and motivate you to live a world-class Christian life. Now, let's talk about the first thing I want you to know. The rapture is imminent. Imminent refers to a future event which is impending, which could take place at any moment. Not necessarily soon, not necessarily immediately, but quickly, suddenly, without warning when it does happen. Okay? So that means we ought to live our lives with an active, healthy expectation. Uh, well, what if the rapture doesn't happen before I die? Well, you ought to live that kind of life with that kind of expectation anyway because you're not guaranteed 90 or 120 like Maxine's going to get. Some of us don't stay that long, you know. You're only a heartbeat away anyway. And if you take your life as, uh, for granted, which obviously the McPhersons don't, nor the lives of the precious little girls, we ought to be living uh, on the edge in that sense anyway. Not in a morbid way, but just realizing we need to be strategic and consistent. Now, there are a lot of passages that talk about the fact the, the coming of the Lord and the rapture is at hand, could happen at any moment. I only want to look at one closely, but I'm just giving you some extras you can check out on your own. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, for instance, Paul commends 
the Corinthians, who he has to otherwise excoriate for most of that letter, for eagerly awaiting the revelation of Christ in the air. Uh, Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior who's going to transform our body into conformity with the body he's got. That's the rapture. That's what he's talking about there. That's the imminent coming of Christ. We're supposed to be eagerly awaiting it because it could happen at any moment. James 5 says, the coming of the Lord is near. He's standing right at the door. And then the Revelation passages talk about him coming quickly. And I want to look at this particular one, 2212. Uh, the yellow is uh, New American Standard. The blue is stuff I'm adding, hopefully for some clarification. The Lord Jesus in the epilogue of Revelation says, behold, I'm coming quickly. And my reward, salvation isn't a reward. You don't earn it or deserve it. This is on top of salvation. This is commendation for fruit and faithfulness in the Christian life. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man. He means believer, uh, Nancy as much as Scott, Olga as much as Danny, according to what he or she has done. Let's look at that closely. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Doesn't sound quickly to me. I'm not, not a math major, but if Jesus says this in 96 AD to John, the last living apostle, and we're living in 2014, it didn't happen quickly. Well, quickly is not an adverb, it's a prepositional phrase, en take, not en taco. En taco is what you get at Taco Bell down the street there. En take means suddenly, quickly. Rapido when it happens. It's impending. It's overhanging. Could happen any moment, like a thief in the night. They don't call you and say, hey, uh, next Thursday afternoon about four would be a real convenient time for me to unload all your earthly possessions. Would that sound, can you relate, relate to that, strangers? You know, people break into your house and they don't warn you. They don't tell you. When it happens, it's boom, all of a sudden. So I'm coming with speed. That's uh, the translation I would uh, uh, prefer for. Quickly is an adverb, that's a prepositional phrase, that's a prepositional phrase. Coming with speed, suddenly, without warning, at any moment, it's impending, overhanging. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. Now hold it. Render to people what, based on what they've done? We're talking about salvation by good works here? Didn't Ephesians say something like, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God? Not of works? So we got nothing to brag about? About Romans, to the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith's reckoned as righteousness? That's Romans 4, 5. But here Jesus says he's going to give every man based on what he's done. Uh, the key is that word. Salvation is a gift. Rewards are earned on top of that. Salvation has to do with eternal residence. Evaluation rewards has to do with eternal rewards or commendation. Uh, a great passage on this is 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, uh, 5. But let's just look at verse 14, 15. He's talking about an event that happens after the rapture where Eric Ward's Christian life will be examined by a loving but totally honest Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll look at all the stuff Eric did in his Christian life and why he did it. And he's looking to find stuff to like, okay? Your sins have been paid for. As Dr. Hendricks told us at seminary, uh, this event called the judgment seat of Christ 
It's kind of like your graduation ceremony. Robbie, everybody in a cap and gown gets a diploma. Everybody graduates. But some people graduate summa cum laude, and other people graduate laude how come with a D minus average, but they all graduate. And in that, the climax statement of that big passage on this evaluation of believers' fruit for the basis of getting well-deserved commendation for the grace of God working in their lives, if any man, that would be woman too, believers' work remains after Christ sees what you did, like coming to church today, why you did it, and what your attitude was like while you put up with it, I mean, while you uh, interacted with it, listening to me, right? Uh, if it remains, he'll receive reward. Have we seen that word before? Yeah. I'm coming suddenly with speed and my reward. I just can't wait to give out my rewards to believers. And I'm going to look to try to find stuff to like. And whatever I like in your Christian life is going to receive misthos, not charisma, not a gift, but a reward. It's rendered paycheck in secular uh, documents. But if any believer's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. Now, some people want to say loss of salvation, but I would say just based on strict context, it's parallel lines. If the man's work remains, he's going to receive reward at his eternal uh, destination, heaven. If the person's work is burned up, they did the wrong things or the wrong, right things for the wrong reasons, he's going to suffer a loss of what? In context, what is it? Ron, you're a contextual Bible student, Right? But watch this. You say, well, Brad, I can't buy that. Just keep reading the rest of the sentence. If a man's work remains, he'll get reward. If a man's work's burned up, he'll suffer a loss of reward. But what does the text say? He himself will still be saved. Okay? So I always see this. I'm, Debbie will tell you, uh, when I, if I buy her or the kids something, I just can't wait for the birthday. I just go ahead and give it to them, you know. Uh, now, I wait like five minutes and say, I was going to wait, you know, for a month when the anniversary here it, it comes around. But here, just take it, you know. Um, and I really see that in this Lord, the Lord's statement here. I'm coming back, and I just can't wait to give all the rewards uh, that you guys earn. So here's my diagram. It's kind of clunky, but I think it's helpful. Salvation is by grace through faith, apart from works. All the work done to get you from Oklahoma to heaven, Jesus did on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. In the set of the saved, there'll be levels of reward. In the set of the unsaved, there'll be levels of condemnation, and it will all be fair. And, uh, you know, we got, what, Gene and Max up here, and Janice up here, and then uh, some of us down there, but uh, Lordy, how come? We'll all be there. We'll be trophies of God's grace. So the first thing I want you to know about the rapture is it's imminent. I'm coming with speed. Suddenly, without warning, it could happen at any moment. I remember one of my teachers said, Michelle, if you think of, of history as a line, a linear line that proceeds forward, the church age kind of is not proceeding forward. It's kind of like it goes across the top of Niagara Falls, and we're waiting for the coming of Christ to initiate the end times, and then the world plunges into the tribulation. The church is taken out, and we go from there. I think that's a helpful analogy for me. Second thing I want you to know about the rapture is the fact that it will initiate the end times. The rapture event, in my opinion, is pre-tribulational, and it sets the scene for everything else that will happen. Look at Revelation chapter 4. Obviously, we're talking about Bible prophecy, the first book that people think about for obvious reasons. 
is going to be Revelation chapter, book of Revelation, and we're going to look at Revelation chapter, chapter 4. Very significant verse based on the structure of the book, and I'll show you why in a moment. Revelation, last book in the New Testament, chapter 4. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. After these things I looked, John the Apostle, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. That sounds like the rapture event to me. And the first voice which I heard, the voice of Christ, the command voice, like the sound of a trumpet back in chapter 1, speaking with me, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Watch this. If you put the book of Revelation on a chart, in chapter 1, John is given orders to write the book. He's on a Roman prison island called Patmos. We've been there. It's a real place. In chapters 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus evaluates the strengths and weaknesses of seven local churches that John knew personally ministered to before he was put in isolation on Patmos. And then the future prophecy part of the book of Revelation starts in chapter 4. And we see the, what I, heaven, the control room, after the rapture, just before the tribulation starts on earth. And John is caught up there to see history from that vantage point. Okay? Chapter 6 through 18 talk about the seven-year tribulation that Daniel told us so much about. Chapter 19 talks about the literal second advent of Christ. Chapter 20, six times we're told is a 1,000-year kingdom on the earth and then the eternal state. But watch this. In, uh, and let me just do that. Okay? What, what I'm suggesting is the rapture event, 1 Thess 4, 1 Corinthians 15, is imminent. It's going to initiate the end times. The rapture event ends the church age, and it's alluded to in Revelation 4, 1. And that's a whole different thing than the return of Christ, the second advent of Christ at the end of the tribulation, which is described in Zechariah 12 and Psalm 2 and Second uh, Thess 2 and Matthew 24 and Revelation 19. And we're going to show you that distinction. But let me just, I want to be fair. There have been people like John Wesley on one side and John Calvin on the other side whose chart doesn't look like that. Well, let me say, when they were on earth, their chart of prophecy didn't look like that. Now they're in heaven, they've corrected it, so it looks exactly like that. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's fairly common for people not to see, for Christian thinkers, to, to think that the, the rapture passages are not talking about a distinct event from the second advent, but they're talking about something that takes place in connection. So slide that arrow over here, and it's like Christ comes down, and the dead in Christ are resurrected in the air, and then we're caught up, if we're alive, to meet him in the air on his way down, and we come right back down with him, okay? So just to be fair, that's, that's one way you can interpret these passages. I respectfully disagree. I think there's a distinction between the two, as I'll show you, but you need to be aware of that. And the absolute irreducible minimum of evangelical understanding about Bible prophecy is a literal, bodily, supernatural, undeniable second advent. And we all have that on our chart. We also have that on our chart. Other than that... Calvin and Wesley are all wet on eschatology. Don't read their eschatology. I'm just telling you. That's, that's me. Now, uh, Revelation chapter 4 actually breaks off structurally that third section of the book. The first section talks about John being commissioned to write the book in chapter 1. The second section, chapter 2 and 3, talk about the church age, the churches, the things Jesus likes and doesn't like in churches. So, Eric, if you wanted to see what Jesus specifically says about stuff he likes and doesn't like in churches, you know where you go? 
You got a second Hezekiah, right? No, you got a Revelation 2 and 3. The third and final part of the book, and the big part of the book, is chapter 4 through 22. It's the prophetic, future end time prophetic portion. And it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The same voice I heard in chapter 1 of Christ saying, Come up here, I'll show you what takes place after these things. You read that and say, That's nice. Okay, maybe that's a structural marker. It's got to be. And let me show you why. At the end of chapter 1, we're told how the book's going to break down. Uh, Jesus tells John, write the things you've just seen about me coming to you on Patmos and telling you to write the book. Write about the things that are, the churches that exist right now, and then I want you to write about the things that will take place after these things, Greek text, original language, metatata, and then when you get to chapter 4 that begins that third part, the end times things, the things after the rapture, tribulation, second advent, millennium, eternal state, he tells you, after these things, what things? Christ in chapter 1 commissioned him to write, chapters 2 and 3, the churches. After those things I looked, a door standing open in heaven, come up here, I'm going to show you what's going to take place, metatata, metatata. He's telling you we're now in the future prophetic part of the book. And so for my money, we're seeing uh, John here in 96, we're seeing the churches, and boom, he's caught up there. We see the control room before all the madness of the tribulation starts. But the rapture is what initiates it. It's a supernatural thing. You can't reproduce it in the laboratory. It's impending, overhanging, could happen any moment. And I'm convinced it's not the same thing as the second advent. Uh, in the rapture, the movement is up to be with the Lord and back to the prepared places. In the second advent, it's down to earth, sheep, goat, judgment, millennium. That's different. It's in the air on the Mount of Olives. That's where he's going to come back. We've, we've been to the Mount of Olives, huh, Kathy? It's a real place, isn't it? Yeah. Where is Jesus going to take us in the rapture? To prepare places in heaven. What's he going to do at the second advent? Prepare the earth for the millennium. The rapture will end the church age and initiate the end times. The second advent ends the tribulation and brings in the kingdom. The rapture was a mystery in the Old Testament. Not talked about in the Old Testament, right? The second advent of Christ is a major theme of the Old Testament. Is the Messiah a lamb or is he a lion, Ray? The Old Testament says he's going to be both. One Savior, two different aspects, right? And the rapture is imminent, could happen any moment. Second advent can only happen after certain specific, quite a few things biblically have to happen before you have a second advent. Okay? Now, by the way, people say, well, that's a relatively new idea in church history. But you know what? I see an analogy between what the Old Testament did with prophecy and what the New Testament did. Let's make uh, this pulpit uh, the life, death, resurrection of Christ. In the Old Testament, the prophets, it's almost like they are standing on a mountain peak, and there's another mountain peak here and a deep valley beyond the pulpit and a second mountain peak. And they can, the Old Testament prophets talk about the first coming of the Messiah like a lamb, the second coming on that second mountain peak, but I can't see this valley from my perspective over here. And he's not a lamb in that second aspect. What is he like? He's like a lion, right? That's Old Testament prophecy. New Testament prophecy is similar. Not one Savior, two Advents, but two comings in two different aspects. He's going to come for the church at any moment, initiate the end times, and then at the end of the trib, he's going to come uh, as the lion. Uh, it's the literal second Advent to the earth, okay? So, Let's talk about uh, initiating the end times. Look at 1 Thess uh, chapter 1. I, I just kind of, kind of did some synthetic analysis there from the whole book of Revelation. But 
Look at 1 Thessalonians. We're just starting a new series on 1 Thessalonians on Wednesday night, by the way. We're calling it Practical Prophecy, which is what Paul does with those two books. He talks about prophecy, but he makes it very practical. And in, actually, that should be 1, 9, and 10. The last two verses of 1 Thess 1, uh, I think, tell you that, in fact, the rapture is going to take place before the tribulational wrath hits the earth. It's going to initiate the end times. Uh, look at 1 Thess 1, 9. For they, people in the area who are seeing the contagious nature of the Thessalonians' new faith, they report about us what kind of reception we, Paul and the gang, his missionary group, Silas and Timothy, had with you. That's plural. In Oklahoma, that's all y'all. Uh, Kathy, in Oklahoma, we got y'all, the singular, all y'all is plural. Okay, so that's all y'all here. How you turn to God from idols, that's their salvation. To serve a living and true God, that's their sanctification. And to wait for his son from heaven, the rapture event, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. When we see coming wrath in the Bible, we're trained to think of hellfire, and I do believe in hell, but that ain't hellfire. Orge never refers to hell, it refers to wrath on the earth. And so what we've got is these folks have come to faith in Christ, they're serving and walking with him, and they're anticipating at any moment the rapture event could happen and the world could plunge into the end times, but we're going to be up and out. He's not going to let his church go through the rapture. Uh, for those of you who like simpler diagrams than the first one, <laughs> here, here's, here's the difference between, I'm not a graphic designer, okay, that's me, that's my diagram. My son's a graphic designer. That's his diagram. Okay, can you tell a difference there? We can, yeah. But sometimes simple is better, right? Uh, Paul's saying, look, uh, everybody in the area has found out about, you've turned from Zeus and Neptune and Pluto, all those Greek gods, not the planets. By the way, they deplanetized Pluto a few years ago. Okay, it's not a planet anymore. Nothing has hurt me more in my adult life than that fact. <laughs> I mean, I'm still getting over it. But, uh, Science, you know, marches on. But, uh, yeah, so you turn to God from idols. Now you're serving the true God, and you're waiting for a son from heaven to, to deliver, is it going to deliver the church from the wrath of the tribulation. Jesus in Matthew 24 says, Then during the tribulation there will be such chaos on earth like never seen before. If it continued indefinitely, it would destroy the whole planet. All right, three things every TBFR needs to know, including April. April, I want you to know the rapture is imminent. It could happen any moment. When it happens, it's going to start the end times and all the other unfulfilled things about the future. Okay, friend? Now, the third thing I want you to know is the rapture can and should impact us practically. I just flat never apologize for teaching prophecy because I think it's very practical. It, it assures you of the sovereign control of God over his creation. Uh, it's exciting to think of our prospects, uh, and we should, right? And... Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm a very patriotic, proud American citizen. I'm so thankful when, I, when we do travel out of the country. It's such a, it's always a thrill to come back and get your passport stamp. And a lot of times they'll say, welcome back to the United States. And it always feels good when that happens, right? So I'm proud of my American citizenship. Um, but I have dual citizenship, right? Our citizenship's in heaven. And that's important. Um, look at Titus chapter 2. Let's think about some of the practical aspects of the, the idea of an imminent rapture that will 
initiate the end times in such a way that uh, God is going to defeat evil, uh, quarantine evil for all eternity, and we'll get to the best of all possible worlds. We're not in the best of all possible worlds now. One less rape, one less abortion, one less murder, you got a better world. I think we probably have the best world achievable with creatures making real choices, but we don't have the best of all possible worlds yet. Those who argued that in the Middle Ages lost, and they should have. Uh, Revelation 21, new heaven, new earth is the best of all possible worlds. We're headed there, and the process initiates with the rapture. Look at Titus 2. I'm going to read all of 11 through 14. I just have a section of that here. But uh, practical prophecy. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us who have received the gospel to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, the church age, looking for the next thing. What's imminent? What will initiate the end times, okay? The rapture. Paul calls it the blessed hope here. Look at that. Uh, Looking for the rapture, the return of Christ in the air, the 1 Thessalonians 4 event, the 1 Corinthians 15 event, the Revelation 22, 12 event. And he calls it looking for the blessed hope and, this is an ascensive chi in the Greek, it's an equals mark, not a plus mark. Looking for the blessed hope, that is the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who in his first advent gave himself for us as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice validated by his literal resurrection from the dead, who gave himself for us to save us. Salvation isn't probation, it's salvation uh, because he paid for it. He redeemed us from every lawless deed, purified for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Paul seems to think, anticipating the fact that Jesus wins and we're a heartbeat away potentially from the rapture when the program will begin in earnest and rapidity ought to be exciting. It's, it's kind of exciting to know that the Christians win. Because if you just look at the headlines, and nobody reads papers anymore, if you just look at Yahoo, right? I mean, every day some atrocity is happening, uh, some horrific thing. It's, it seems moral chaos. You know, we're just kind of spinning out of control. But it's okay. I mean... When you look at Psalm 2, you know, why are the nations all upset and, and blaspheming God? And it says, God is sitting. He's very secure. He kind of scoffs at the attempts to put his program down. And at the right time, his son's going to end history on his terms. And that will be initiated with the rapture event. Grace of God has appeared, bring salvation to all kinds of different kinds of people, telling us who believe not to do the bad stuff, not to be a crummy husband, be a good husband, not to lie, tell the truth not to cheat, study, and make the best grade you can. If a C is all you can make at OU, there's nothing wrong with that. I'd rather you make a C honestly or a D honestly than make an A plus cheat, cheating for it because you're, you're, you're not learning anything that way, right? You're really kind of uh, ripping off the whole process. I know Shelby's not going to cheat, but just so you'll know. Just technically, what's the pastor's position on cheating on tests? Technically, I'm against it, just so you'll know. Okay, A lot of debate on that, right? But uh, he gave himself for us. Yeah, this is, this is the thing that holds all Christians together. This is a very unique kind of thing we got at Tanglewood. We're a group of believers from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds, united by our faith in Christ and a desire to grow and reproduce spiritually. We emphasize the absolute irreversible minimums, plus we try to expose the Scripture so we can understand it and apply it. But it all starts with our faith in Jesus Christ, not about future stuff he's going to do, but stuff he's done in the past, in his first advent. 
And I like to sum it up this way, because Christ died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. And, and the Bible says uh, uh, that uh, God so loved the world full of sinful people that he gave his only son to die for your sins and rise again, that whosoever believes in him, the Greek text says that all of the ones who believe in him shall not perish like a fire, but have present abiding possession, eternal life. And at the end of the atoning process on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And it is finished in English can mean a lot of different things, David. I mean, it can be a whimper of resignation. It's finished. You know, I'm not going to rub any salt in the wound, but uh, after the clock winds down there, very close to Colonial Golf Course. You know that? The scene of the crime is within a couple of miles of Colonial Golf Course, Tom. You know, oh, you had to say it's finished. It, we'll get them next year. Next year is going to be like 57 to 2. You know, I'm just telling you for TCU, so I'm just it's coming. But uh, it is finished can be a whip of resignation. It could be a proud, arrogant declaration. But it's, it is finished in English is one word in the original language of the Gospel of John, telestai. It meant paid in full. You put it on bills of sale after you bought somebody's mule. So as you're walking with that mule through the village, somebody say, hey, that's not your mule, that's Pablo's. We're going to you know, stone you to death. You'd hold up a sheet of paper, sheet of paper and Pablo says, telestai. It's paid in full, right? So uh, Christ is declaring the end of the uh, sacrifice, the payment he made. Because of our sin, we owe God a debt spiritually, morally, cosmically, metaphysically. We cannot pay on our own. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the essence of the gospel. And you can have a perfect eschatological chart of the book of Revelation. And if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you're going to be on the bad end of the draw with your diagram or without it, right? What must I do to be saved? Acts 16.30, what Paul say. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. You don't have to pre-qualify by becoming a Jew and committing to the law first and then believe in the Jewish Messiah. You don't have to be a Baptist. You don't have to be a Methodist. You don't have to be a Presbyterian. You can even be a TBFer. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior because of the grace of God, you have the gift of eternal life. And passages like Titus 2 tell us that uh, an excited expectation, an active looking forward for uh, looking forward to the possibility that Christ could come back any minute should motivate us uh, uh, to live a life full of good deeds, to reject the bad stuff, and put up with a lot of the bad stuff. I mean, let's face it, you've got to put up with a lot of stuff in a fallen world, don't you? Uh, one of my favorite verses is Proverbs 14.4. It says, where there are no oxen, the manger or the stall is always clean, but you're better off with an ox than without an ox. A wise, godly ox farmer isn't going to wake up, you can relate to this, Sanford, is not going to wake up every morning and say, dog the luck, there's manure here in the stall. Lord, I've got an existential crisis every day. We've got the manure. What's the problem? You know, Proverbs says, you know what? The rabbi said, no milk without manure. Just deal with it. Shovel it, use it as, uh, as uh, fertilizer. But as long as you've got an ox, you're going to have to shovel some manure. If you have a car, you've got to get oil changes. You've got to get repairs. You've got to pay the bills, right? So in the fallen world, there's all these kind of things that happen. But anticipating not just the now but the not yet can help us to put that, I think, in a nice context. Let's conclude this way. What are the three things every TBFer should know about the rapture? Number one, 
is imminent. What does that mean? It could happen at any moment. It could happen before we leave the building today. Number two, it will initiate the, the long-awaited end-time scenario the Bible talks about, and it's going to happen on his time. And number three, it should impact us practically. It should convict us. It should comfort us. It should energize us. Uh, when the outlook around us is bleak, the outlook is always beautiful. When we wonder what in the world's going on, we've got to look beyond this world in faith. And as Philippians says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we await eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, nothing that can happen to us now um, can nullify the blessed hope. And the more we anticipate that, I think the more zeroed in we can be on abiding in Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that your word speaks and it doesn't stutter. Uh, you are in control of your creation and of all history, and you will bring it to a close in your time in a way that's pleasing to you and glorifying to you, climaxing in the second advent of Christ. But as we read these passages, Father, uh, give us insight, but I'm convinced that uh, distinct from the second advent is this blessed hope that we use to comfort ourselves because we're not going to go through the wrath of the tribulation. Uh, the church is going to be delivered from it by this supernatural event called the rapture. Some people call it the translation of the church, the blessed hope that Paul talks about taking us back to the prepared places as the Lord alluded to. Uh, make this just as real as today's lunch or next week's math test at high school for us as we think about reality so that we can have a more Christ-centered and a more upbeat, excited Christian life. Help it to comfort us, or not just comfort us, but to convict us. Because if we're dragging our feet, going half speed in certain areas, if we know some things we ought to be doing that you're leading us to do, and we're just not doing it. We're just not, not making the time or the effort. Uh, that should be convicting. We don't want to be going half speed when the Lord comes back to get us. We want to be going full speed, straight ahead. So you know the needs here. Some people here, are their, their spirits have been crushed by unfair or painful circumstances. I pray that the reality of an eternity without those kind of pains and medical issues and relational issues, that's not going to be a problem for any believer. That's exciting uh, as we fight the battles now. Uh, others of us have had some success, and people have told us how great we are, and and we're starting to believe it. We're starting to believe our, our boss pretty lucky we, we're working for him or her. Help us to have a, a regular kind of a, a view of ourselves that sees our strengths and our weaknesses. Uh, give us a transparency and ability to see not just our strengths but our weaknesses. And, and help even the uh, realization of uh, the imminence of the return of Christ to, to catalyze that because we can't fake you out. We can fake other people out, maybe even ourselves, but we can't fake you out. So take this truth, uh, move it from our heads to our hearts, make it significant to each one of us, not just information, but transforming truth. And we pray that you'd be glorified, Father, uh, in that process and, process and in it, the product of all of that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.